welcome village mentality, where melanated people are connected in spirit, love, and community. Hello, beautiful people out there. It's your girl, CK McGee. I'm Patrina Reed, and we're your hosts. Hi, villagers. Hello there, kings and queens. So good to be back with you all again. My friend, we have made it through yet another week. And as we discussed in our last episode, time is just rolling along. How have you been doing? I have been doing well. Just looking at all the changes and thinking about what's going on, trying to get ready for the new school season. How about you? How are you doing? Well, I have to be honest, friend. Uh, These last couple of days, I haven't really been feeling so great. I think maybe a little slight stomach bug, something like that. But one thing that I am very happy about is in spite of it, or despite the, the fact that I haven't been feeling that great, I have powered through by the grace of God. So I am here and raring to go. Well, I am so sorry to hear that you are not feeling your absolute best, but I am also excited at the fact that you are here with us and you're able to give us the best you at this time. So we hope that you feel better and that you can get through this lovely episode that we're going to have without any issues. <laughs> well, thank you. That is my hope as well, my friend. I do appreciate it. And with that being said, let us move forward to our segment called Let's Talk About It. Okay, so my friend, have you heard our own governor, Andrew Cuomo, uh, from uh, here in the great state of New York, he was just recently named the new chairman of the NGA, which is the National Governors Association, and it was by unanimous decision. Did you hear that? I did hear about it. Matter of fact, uh, this is one of the lovely videos that you had sent me um, <laughs> to, to remind me that he was appointed. But yes, I had heard about it prior to um, you sending me the video. And I am so excited for him. He looked so happy to uh, get that position. Yes, and very well deserved. I mean, we know from watching his daily briefings and seeing really just how widespread it was. In other words, that people had accessibility to look at them from across the country. We had an opportunity to hear from several people how impacted they were in a positive way uh, to hear his briefings and how they brought some you know, sense of calm to them uh, despite all of the madness that was going on. And let me also just mention that his vice chair is Governor Hutchinson uh, from the state of Arkansas. So Governor Cuomo is replacing Governor Hogan from Maryland. So congratulations to him. Um, the video that you're talking about, there were three points, my friend, that he uh, wanted to bring to our attention that the NGA would be focusing on. So um, at first, he started off by saying that their agenda for this coming year will not be a question of 
discretion, but rather the dictation of reality. He said their agenda is America's recovery and revival. What do you think about that? He is a forward-thinking person. And so to see him in his um, glory, so to speak, and at his best with understanding that it's not about what happened, but it's about how to move forward, that was definitely exciting for me. Absolutely. That is totally correct. It's exactly the way I felt about it. So let's uh, talk about the three points that he uh, mentioned. He said, first, they want to manage COVID-19 until a vaccine is developed. And he stated that the federal government will need to work with the NGA in partnership to that end. He also said the next step is to deal with the undeniable consequences and effects that COVID-19 had on the economy, you know, the damage that it was done, because it was definitely felt all across the country, and also to pay attention to critical healthcare needs that have been exposed and highlighted by this pandemic. And he rounded out that agenda by saying that they want to build a new relationship between the state and federal government. He said that the last six months have shown what the states are capable of doing and that it is time to reformulate and redefine the federal partnership. What do you think about that? I thought those were great points to um, focus on. Of course, we know that COVID is far from over. We also have to step up and make decisions. And not all of the governors were on the same page, but at least the ones that was working you know, closely with Governor Cuomo was able to establish a standard so that we could live through this, this pandemic. And then to create a partnership with the federal government is necessary because funding comes from the federal government. They don't have partnership, then they will not be able to get the things done that the states need. So I really um, appreciated the fact that he was, again, forward thinking in his, 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 in his intent and what they're going to do. Yeah, very, very, um, very much. Um, you know, agree with everything that you said. And as you were speaking, you know, I was just replaying in my mind again that he was unanimously voted in to this position. So that means that every governor in all 50 states voted him into this position. And, you know, when you think about the fact that these different states had different approaches, or you had some that took, you know, the severity of this virus up a lot more seriously than others, it is amazing that they, that they did that, don't you think? Yes, and it's wonderful because whether they like what happened or not, they realize that, again, he set the standard. The majority of the world yep. was watching him as he took control over the pandemic for the state of New York. He asserted his expertise he included and invited all those who he needed to include and invite, and he then offered help to others. So it's 
you don't have a leader that's willing to do all of those things, then mm, you really don't want that person as a leader. So that's the reason why that unanimous vote was, was done. I mean, it was no choice. He has shown his ability. Yeah. And I mean, not just from an administrative point of view, but also just to show how he cares about the people. He's not willing to sacrifice the people for anything, even, you know, when it came to questions of reopening the economy or, you know, businesses, um, you know, decisions about like school, like everything that he has done, he has done with us you know, first and foremost, he has been a person of his word. And like you said, you know, the way he extended his help and support to other states is something that he said, you know, throughout the duration of this, up, uh, you know, so far that, listen, for all of those uh, volunteers that came to New York, you know, that helped us through uh, the, the height of our crisis here, because we were the epicenter at one time, please believe that New York has your back. And we will repay, you know, uh, uh, the kindness that you that you've shown us. So, I am so happy for him. I am so proud. And um, he just ended basically by saying that, you know, the pandemic has impacted all of us, and it will take all of us to get through this. So, unless this virus is defeated everywhere, it will not be defeated anywhere. So. For those of you who may not have seen it, if you are interested in seeing um, in seeing this briefing, you can go to nga.org uh, for you know it in its totality. Wonderful, and again, congratulations to Governor Cuomo. Absolutely, Queen. And so now we're going to move on to a case that I have another case that I've come across having to do with an African American male who once again, has been accused of, in this case, murder. Um, and this is a case that actually the Innocence Project is involved with. And uh, his name is Purvis Payne. And so the details of this case is that one afternoon in June of 1987, in Millington, Tennessee, Payne, who was waiting for his girlfriend to return to her apartment, uh, decided that you know he would approach the apartment building, I guess wait inside. As he entered into the building, there was a person that quickly ran past him. Now, it's not really clear as to whether or not it was directly across the hall from his girlfriend's apartment, or if it was within close proximity. He discovered that her neighbor Sharice Christopher and her children had been brutally attacked. So Purvis, who is intellectually disabled, tried to help, but as he heard the police sirens coming closer, it occurred to him that he would be blamed for this. He was absolutely shocked by the scene. He panicked and he ran, but as he feared, he was arrested later that day. Uh, of course, went to trial and everything, and he was found guilty, and he was sentenced to death. And he has maintained his innocence, you know, throughout these, like, 33 years. Now, the date of his execution is scheduled for December 3rd, 2020. What do you think about this, my friend? Oh, my goodness. Um, Queen, when you sent this to me, 
before you encourage me to um, check it out, I immediately jumped on it because of Julius Jones and the various other African-American men and women that are on death row and are innocent. So in reading this, um, I wasn't shocked, you know, because unfortunately, innocent people get blamed for things all the time. Right. So I wasn't shocked. But what I was uh, appalled about was the fact that for over 30 years, he's been claiming his innocence and no other investigation has been done. You didn't find any other viable suspects, nor did you look for any other viable suspects. Right. You know, when you think about it, he was just 20 years old when this happened, and now he's like 53. Exactly. And it's just like, how can you, one, execute a intellectually disabled person? Well, we're going to get into that. And two, what other uh, evidence that you have besides that he was at the scene, which he admitted to being at the scene, he admitted to stumbling upon what happened. What else do you have to make that point? So, no, and those are all very good questions. And as I said, the Innocence Project is involved, and there are eight points that they want to make um, about this case. The first three are all tied together. And so uh, the first one is that the evidence in this case has never been tested for DNA. Let me say that again has never been tested for DNA. Number two, the, Shel the Shelby County District Attorney, Amy Werich, he's actually opposing DNA testing in this case. And third, there is a history of this particular DA's office standing in the way of DNA testing when there is a question of innocence. Girl, how do you not use DNA. You know why? Because like you just said a few minutes ago, you don't want to find who did this. As far as the state of Tennessee is concerned, oh, a black man was on the scene. He's guilty. And that's sad. I mean, we know that DNA back in 1987 wasn't, a DNA testing back in 1987 wasn't as viable as it is today. But there still was DNA there. There was a murder that took place. Some blood was found, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So there was some DNA. Yeah. And it's never been tested. And any attempt to get it tested has been blocked. Now, let me go on with the other points. Purvis Payne, first of all, had no motive. And as we have both mentioned, he lives with an intellectual disability. Um, he's described by those who know him as kind and respectful. Now, the next thing is that prosecution used racial stereotypes to portray him as a black man who was hypersexual and who was also a violent drug user. And guess what? He attacked a white woman. So in addition to that information, I read that Shelby County is among 25 counties 
with the most recorded lynchings between 1877 and 1950 in the United States. And 300 Black people accused of murdering white people have been executed since 1976, 14 times higher than the number of white people killing white people. This is amazing. Why, what are you trying to hide? Why blocking the DNA? Um, what is it benefiting you? Why would you want to do that? Why wouldn't you want to bring the person who committed this murder to justice? It doesn't matter if the person is black, brown, purple, orange. It doesn't matter. What matters is this woman and her children were murdered. And so you have evidence that could exonerate one man and put the right person behind bars, but you choose to stop it? You block that from happening? Absolutely. And, you, and that's supposed to be justice for, for whom? And certainly not for us. And that's the whole problem. That's the whole problem, that they continue to use racial stereotypes to contribute to wrongful convictions and sentencing. Anything that you can do to make it appear that a black man is a threat to you know, white people, to society, these are the lengths that they go to in order to either uh, incarcerate or execute. And they're not about seeking justice. Justice is not at the center of this at all. Racism is. That's what the problem is. And that's what continually happens to black and brown people um, on a, you know, on a regular basis. And the sad thing about it is what about this, this woman and her children's family? What about the fact that, yes, I know she is a white woman and her family is probably okay with the fact that this black man got caught for it because, you know, they made it seem like he did it. But really, is that really justice for them? No, actually it's not. And people are not thinking about that. You're right. Like if we're going to do things, let's take color out of it and let's look at the reality. We're talking about a murderer who have been free 30 years, whatever he or she pleases, while this man is sitting there wrongly accused of a murder he didn't commit nor is he able to um, intellectually defend himself. Absolutely. And that brings me to the last two points, my friends. Now, because he lives with an intellectual disability, it is in fact unconstitutional to execute him. Now in school, he was never really able to read, write, or do math. And his family states, that it was difficult for him to even follow complicated instructions, including driving instructions to like a new place, difficulties with getting him to be able to understand how to do, you know, some of the chores around the house. And then lastly, because of his disability, he was not able to be a strong witness on his own behalf. So during the trial, his disability was not even acknowledged. But since his trial, doctors have confirmed that he does have 
intellectual disability. So you have stereotypes and racism that have dr driven the course of this case and any case against black and brown individuals that is substituted for evidence. And then things within the case that could help either provide a fair trial or to demonstrate that it is not the correct person that they have in custody or that they are trying, they actually get away with not even using. That is just amazing to me. It's astonishing. I mean, I can't believe it. And I, I can't believe that they do something like this to a person. Like, if he is unable to understand basic um, instructions, can he understand what you're doing to him? How, do he, how does he know what you're really saying to him? How is he comprehending that? How can you as a person be on the jury, be the judge, be the lawyer, both defense and prosecutor, and be okay with having this man on death row? Because racial discrimination, my sister, runs just that deep. And it's funny that you mentioned the lawyer because I was going to say a lot of times these cases, you know who gets these cases, you know, legal aid attorneys or attorneys that have like 50, 75 different cases, their caseload is heavy. They're not really uh, uh, able to or willing to dedicate the amount of time and dedication or commitment. Uh, to the case, you know, as much as they should. I mean, did you get a chance to see that movie that Jamie Foxx was in? I think it was called Just Mercy with Michael B. Jordan. Not, but I am, it is on my to-do list. I am going to watch it. Because that's exactly, you know, um, indicative of, of, you know, what's going on here. And once again, in all of these cases that I come across, when you're reading about them or you're watching documentaries on them, it is clear, it is blatant that it is racism that's driving all of these convictions and executions because the evidence hasn't even been presented, hasn't even been presented. And so really the judge, the jury, the attorneys, everybody should be thrown out because none of them are actually doing the job that they were so-called sworn in to do. Goodness, when is this going to end? It needs to stop. And this, I mean, it just, it just needs to stop. This needs to end. I tell you, I'm no attorney, but all I can do in my position, little that it is, is to bring awareness and, and to hope mm -hmm. that in bringing the awareness that we can all, you know, um, find a way to support, you know, sign petitions, talk about it on our different platforms, bring it to light so that we can, you know, force the issue because you're right, it, it, there's no way, it, it, it can't keep going this way, but it's already been going this way for a long time. How many cases do you hear about where finally, you know, an African-American man has been exonerated and he has spent the last like 30 something years in jail? Too many too many cases and that's why it has to stop this cannot keep going on this is what we're fighting for equality this is what we're fighting for when we talk about black lives matter because of the fact that look how long this happens and it continues to happen and people can't say that it's not racism when it's clear it's evident it's there
anyone could see it. Absolutely. So this, of course, along with Julius Jones and other cases that we may come across, we will definitely uh, keep you guys, you know, uh, in the village. We'll keep you updated. And, and I'm just, I'm, I'm really, I'm sort of just like lost for like words, honestly, because it, it's just what they're able to get away with is, is astounding to me. It really is. Moving on to a brighter uh, part of the show, we have found our way to this week's inspirational story. What do we have this week, Queen? Well, friend, uh, there's a little something special about this story, but I'm going to wait until the end to reveal it to you. All right, so. A wise teacher once brought balloons to school and she told her pupils to blow them up and write their name on one. After the children tossed their balloons into the hall, the teacher moved through the hall, mixing them all up. Now the kids were given five minutes to find the balloon with their name on it. But though they searched frantically, no one found their own balloon. Then the teacher told them to take the balloon closest to them and to give it to the person whose name was on it. In less than two minutes, everyone was holding their own balloon. So what's the moral of the story? Well, the teacher said to the children, these balloons are like happiness. We won't find it when we're only searching for our own. But if we care about someone else's happiness, it will ultimately help us find our own. What do you think about that, my friend? My goodness, that is a beautiful story. And yes, I agree. Um, Think about that. You're doing for others. I know, especially for me, doing for others makes me feel the most happy. So um, I can see that being the case. And then as a teacher, I definitely am able to visualize it and think about the things I've done with my students and asking them to find somebody else's stuff and they are able to point it out quicker than they're able to point out their own. So it, 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 it rings true. I love that story. Well, I am so glad that you enjoyed it. And let me also make you aware of this, my friend. This is our very first inspirational story that comes from one of our villagers. I am happy. Oh, goodness. Thank you, villagers. I appreciate that. (laughs) Yes. I want to give, actually, a large shout out to my brother. I received an email from him the other day. He is a supporter and he came across this story. And at the top of the email, it said, um, as I read this story, I thought about 
your show, your podcast, and he wanted to share it. And I said, oh my God, look, he's demonstrating, you know, um, village mentality. And it made me feel excited. You know, sometimes all you just need is one person. So I wanted to, uh, I kept that under wraps because I wanted to surprise you with that. <laughs> that was a beautiful surprise. Thank you so much, villager. Thank you, King, for sending that into us. We definitely appreciate it and enjoyed it. <laughs> Absolutely. So as we continue on this high, we have come to the portion of the show that I have come to love, and that is our song for the week. So my friend, please tell us what musical gem you have up your sleeve this week. As always, I love your introductions. And this week was a collaboration. Um, me and, and, and my queen sister here decided that we needed to find a song that cherished the joy and love of children in a different way. So we, we went back in the archives and we thought of our dear queen sister who is no longer here, Whitney Houston. And when we thought about the things that she's done, the greatest love of all was the song that we chose for this week. So I want us to sit back, relax, and enjoy Whitney Houston's greatest love of all. And when we come back, we'll get into today's topic.
Oh my goodness, my friend. I so miss Whitney Houston. I swear I loved her so much. And I can remember uh, hearing, uh, you know, hearing the song and watching the video and really, you know, feeling as a, as a kid, you know, um, how can you not know <laughs> that you're not loved? And the thing about it is she is correct when she's saying that, you know, the children are our future. And so, you know, we do have to do whatever we can to teach them well and, and let them lead the way. And in a lot of instances, that's exactly what's going on today. So this was definitely a fitting song for this episode. Yes, ma'am. You did a great job at reminding me. And so about the song, I appreciate you helping me with my musical uh, jukebox this week. And yes, Whitney Houston was one of the greatest. Well, thank you for allowing me to, to do so. And uh, with that, we're going to jump in to part two of our show. So um, if you didn't have an opportunity to listen part one, you know, to, to part one, please do. We were talking about the new uh, childcare system, as we know, we have all been in discussion uh, about you know, what's going to happen moving forward as far as this new school year is concerned. And although we know that there are some states in our country where students have returned to school, uh, unfortunately, we see that there have been some complications. There have been those that have tested positive along with other teachers for COVID-19. And so here in New York, uh, which is the state we're in and where we know, you know, most about, um, that conversation is happening. And last week, my friend, we were talking about the uh, daycare slash pre-K um, reopening uh, standards and guidelines. And you were talking to us about that. And the other part of that uh, question that I um, posed to you last week had to do with your experience now as a mother uh, with, a young, with a son uh, who's in school and what it was like as far as remote learning. So can you talk to us a little bit about that this week? Sure. Um, when COVID began and schools were closed, um, my son's school had already started implementing remote learning. So they started a week before uh, regular public school started. Um, he's in a charter school. And in the beginning, we found it to be challenging because of technical issues, um, because of miscommunication, and um, as far as the clarity of which the assignments were, were uh, given and where they should be submitted and things of that nature. So we did find that it was challenging in the beginning, however, his school did a great job at communicating with parents and having um, Zoom conference calls and different things to address what we were experiencing and then help us to implement things that we could do to make it easier. So with them implementing the necessary changes and helping us to navigate through the different screens and the slides and different things that had to be done as far as assignments are concerned, my son was then able to excel much better 
once we were able to iron out those kinks. That is definitely great to hear. And the fact that they, you know, had, you know, sort of like a weak head start um, and were able to work through some of the kinks that you mentioned, the technical issues and also with submitting uh, assignments. Um, would you say that it was key that the school communicated with the parents in terms of, you know, the, the, the success and, and, and the progress of it? Absolutely, because in the beginning, we wasn't getting any communication. So we didn't know what was required, so to speak. We didn't know how they were doing things per se. They were still trying to figure it out. Um, at one point, it was okay, submit uh, assignment in this particular location. Then it was like, oh no, that we're not gonna use that any longer. Let's submit assignments here. So yes, it was imperative to the success of his school year and all of the children's school year. For the remote learning in and of itself, my friend, would you say that it had a positive or negative impact on your son as a student? I feel like it had an overall positive impact on him. And that's because he was able to recognize for himself that he could do more than he was doing while he was in school and in an in-person session. So because of the accountability, because of the things that he had to do on his own and relying on himself, he was able to see that with hard work, perseverance, he could do the absolute best without being in front of a teacher all the time. Well, you know, that's really great. And the reason why I asked that question is because there were students that were asked, you know, that have been asked over, you know, the duration of time that we've been dealing with this. And a lot of them have said that they have, you know, excelled, that they feel like they have become stronger as a student um, as a result of having to take accountability, uh, to practice time management, you know, to take responsibility for organizing themselves. And as you mentioned earlier, you know, in submitting their assignments and, you know, a lot of kids, while their parents may have been at home, uh, they may have also had parents that were working from home who may not have always been able to be there to like oversee every aspect of it. So if you're saying that it was an overall positive experience for him, I think that's great. Yes, it was really um, great to see, not just um, for him, for him, but, but it was it was great for me too. Like we were able to partner together and work out the kinks that needed to be worked out, and so it was a beautiful collaboration between all. So moving forward, my friend, uh, what is the plan? Will your son be, you know, going back to class on full-time basis? Will he be doing remote learning, hybrid learning? How, how will he uh, proceed? So he decided that he wants to do a blended learning where he will go to school on the days that he goes to school. And then on the days that he doesn't, he will be working at home remotely. And hopefully, um, that will continue to yield success. If not, with the information that we have from the school, 
um, he will be able to make the necessary changes so that we can accommodate the best learning environment for him. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, with that being said, let's move into our state education department issues, uh, the, the guidance um, that they have provided uh, for the rest of the state in order to reopen the schools. And I want to thank you, Queen, for sharing your experience with us, both as a teacher in the pre-K setting, as well as a mom uh, of a student who has experienced the remote learning and, you know, in working with him and uh, just giving us a bird's eye, a bird's eye view into that experience. So with that being said, um, here are some of the guidelines for us to talk about. So, of course, they want to recognize um, that health and safety is important. So they want to focus on preventative actions and schools and districts are going to be required to perform health checks and screenings per the Department of Health guidance. And then as well as the facilities, um, the schools and school districts are supposed to promote social distancing while maintaining existing safety requirements designed to protect students. What do you think about just those first two, Queen? I feel like um, there's a lot with that. <laughs> those first two are a lot. And just being able to follow those guidance or being able to implement them is complicated. Um, so it, it's going to be, it's going to take a, a, um, a careful balance to get things back. Not even, I don't want to say back because that's not really um, accurate to have a reimagined uh, educational system. Right. Right. You're right. Now, some of the other things that they're addressing is nutrition, you know, because we know that schools, um, they need to include food service uh, directors that will be involved in reopening plan discussions so that they are able to meet requirements to provide all enrolled students with access to school meals each day, whether it is in person instruction or remote, and they have to address all applicable health and safety guidelines. That seems like a task. It is definitely an undertaking that um, I can't even imagine where they're going to start. Because if you think about the intricacies of making sure that um, breakfast and lunch is served to in-person and remote learners. Hmm. That's complicated. Yeah. Definitely complicated. And I mean, a lot of the conversation around that too, even in the beginning when, when schools were first shut down, is being able to, you know, reach low-income communities or students who are underserved, students who may live in the shelter system. Um, you know, so that is, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't want to have any doubts, but it's definitely a huge undertaking. Absolutely. And I, I commend all of the um, educators, the administrators, and those who are working with, you know, tirelessly to come up with a viable solution. Absolutely. Now, another one they talk about too 
is transportation and how each district will be required to perform regular school bus disinfection measures, train students and school bus staff regarding social distancing on the bus, at stops and at unloading times. They're, they're supposed to be training students and staff regarding uh, the wearing of masks. Both students and drivers will be required to wear masks and social distance on the bus. How in the world is that supposed to happen? I don't know, because as you were talking about that, I'm thinking about the children who don't have access to or not eligible for the uh, traditional school bus. What about those kids who are taking public transportation to get back and forth to school? My son takes public transportation. So how do you cover that? Exactly. So that's, that's what we're saying. This conversation reveals that there is so much that needs to be done. And I know that we have spoken off, you know, um, off the show or what have you about, you know, the amount of time that has been given to really dedicate to addressing all of these concerns. And it just seems like more time is needed. In fact, I know that it has been suggested that some schools or that schools actually, especially uh, in New York City, New York City public schools, that they open later in the fall. I mean, we're talking about these different things and we may not get to all of them. Um, Of course, you can always, you know, go online and look at the uh, guidelines, you know, for the state, but these are very significant issues that need to be addressed. And I mean, to the satisfaction of parents everywhere for all of these students. So you have like, you know, their social, their their social and emotional well-being. Uh, What about their school schedules? Um, what about how are they going to take care of attendance and chronic absenteeism, as well as technology and connectivity? Yeah, there are a plethora of issues that will arise with them opening up the school and doing in-person learning. And like you mentioned before, with the various conversations that you and I have had, um, we both agree that since remote learning was one aspect that was implemented during this pandemic, why are we not focusing on doing more to make that uh, a better option? And then using that option while they are still negotiating and working out the kinks for everything else, because just a few moments ago, we just talked about transportation. That within itself, a lot of the things that they're going to have to deal with, because you can only um, monitor and maintain what's in your control. You have no control over the MTA. And yes, the MTA has been doing a great job at making sure that they are sanitizing the trains and and buses and things. But let's be honest, are they going to say that that was going to be maintained throughout the rest of the school year? Like, we don't know what's going to happen. Right. It's, 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 it's something else. And then, of course, you know, when you're talking about the different situations that kids are in, because, you know, usually, mostly like upstate here, yes, 
are there school buses? Absolutely, there needs to be in a lot of instances, you know, because of the areas um, that we have, you know, uh, especially like um, upstate New York and so forth and so on. And so it, it's, it's, it's definitely, again, a huge undertaking. And when you're talking about technology and connectivity, this is sort of like a question of equity because how are they able to guarantee adequate access to a computing device and high-speed broadband, which is essential for educational, you know, instruction? Exactly. And again, that is something that is out of their control. Even if they provide the devices, if the household does not have access to not just having access to uh, the internet, but having quality access. Because to be honest, although we have a fairly decent running um, internet, as far as access is concerned, there were technical problems because a lot of children are now on the internet at the same time using this, you know, using similar um, broadbands and similar companies that offer the service. So it was an overload at one point. Right. Absolutely. You know, and I mean, the, the mayor in some of the briefings that I've heard, Mayor de Blasio, he's made it seem as though it'll just be seamless. It'll just be one, two, three. If you have any issues, we'll take care of it. If your device breaks down, we'll replace it. And he makes it sound like it's so easy, but I don't know. It's not that easy. Let's think about, let's just focus on the children that live in shelters. They don't have um, permanent addresses. They have to be um, more diligent about receiving their device, uh, hoping that someone don't steal it or that it never reaches them. And then once they get the device, now they have to find a way to uh, replace it if it if it breaks or it gets damaged. So that within itself is an undertaking, like we keep saying, to make sure that those children in the underserved, disadvantaged areas get just the appropriate access and making sure they receive their devices. There has been several reports done regarding parents waiting for weeks to get access to the free devices that the um, Department of Education said they was going to give them. Yep, that's so true. That is so true. And, you know, um, just to, you know, uh, talk about just a few more, besides teaching and learning and making sure that there's equitable instruction um, for all students, you know, whether it's, um, you know, in person, or remotely, they talked also to my friend about special education, where schools and school districts should consider in-person services a priority for high-need students and preschool students with disabilities whenever possible, and to address remote learning needs in the event of intermittent or extended school closures. Yes, um, they have clearly discerned that it's not beneficial for all special needs children to do remote learning. 
So they do need a facility and which they can go into and have that one-on-one -on -one, uh, type of instruction. But with that being said, you still have to make sure that the facility can, one, foster um, the social distancing that is needed, as well as be maintained with updated information, the cleaning needs to be done. So there's so many aspects that go along with even providing instruction, um, education for the special needs students. So if we boil it down into two nutshells, right? If the first option was to just focus on remote learning for everyone else for right now, and then make sure that in-person instruction was available for those special needs students while in the middle of that getting all of the other things worked out it would be so much better for all children involved while giving everyone enough time to work those things out so opening up in august september doesn't necessarily seem like the best decision yeah, you know, and we talked about the fact that, you know, Governor Cuomo, he said a long time ago, <clears throat> in fact, uh, when the first, when the schools first shut down, that when they visited this, you know, issue later on in the year, that it would be based on the um, infection level. And, you know, here in New York, we have done a miraculous job in turning around the situation again, going from being the epicenter to now having like one of the, if not the lowest infection rates in the country. However, that does not mean that we can become complacent because we see what happens with complacency. So we still have to be mindful of that. And it is not really the only factor to consider as we have pointed out. And again, I invite anyone who hasn't had the opportunity to, you know, you can go online, and you can look at these guidance, excuse me, these issues um, that are being outlined in uh, New York State's guidance to reopen these schools so that you can see actually the full list because we've only, we, we've spoken about as much of them as we possibly can, but for those that we weren't able to get to, you can, you know, go online and, and, and look at it for yourself. But ultimately he did say that even with the schools being open, each district is still doing their own thing in determining what they have to do and how they have to do it. And then at the end of the day, parents are going to be the ones to have the ultimate choice as to whether or not they're going to send their, their, their kids, you know, either, you know, back to school full time, if they're going to do the blended learning or and or hybrid learning, as they also call it, or if they're going to do remote learning. So we'll see how it turns out. Yes, ma'am, we will see, and hopefully we will learn what can be done to assist our students. Absolutely. And so with that being said, my friend, what coping skills do you have for us this week? So this week, I was thinking about, with everything going on, how we need to focus on our emotions and those emotions go for both the parents 
and the children. I think this week is definitely about not only focusing on our emotions, but self-care, self-love, and doing things to help the experience that we're having as far as maybe the anxiety of the kids going back, uh, the anxiety of the parents um, having to deal with a new school year after having a home school if the child is staying at home or even if they're doing the hybrid learning. So self-care and making sure that we deal with our emotions are the two coping skills that I would um, recommend for this week. Yeah, and it's so true because as parents have to make these are, you know, are in the process of making these decisions and <clears throat> they are discerning, you know, and processing the information that is either being given or that they are seeking. Yeah, it is important to manage our emotions and to practice some form of self-care in order to manage, you know, the level of anxiety that both the parents and the children are experiencing because, you know, it's real. It's real. This is, you know, a very important decision. You know, at at the at the end of it all, we we still want to, you know, yes, we want our children to to be educated, but we also uh, have to be uh, conscious of, you know, their health and keeping them safe. This is a public safety issue for all of us, and so, you know, we thank you for those coping skills, and we pray that, you know, everyone will be able to make the best decisions for their children uh, moving forward. And obviously, this is a conversation that will continue in episodes to come. With that being said, my friend, just like that, <laughs> we're at our final segment. This segment we like to call For the Village. Now, my friend, what example of village mentality do you have for us this week? So this week, I found a wonderful story about a mysterious mom in Maryland. And this mysterious mom has been making lunches for everyone to take free of charge. She put out a table, she dressed it up, and she made brown bag lunches with healthy snacks and items for people to eat. And she puts them out every day between the hours of 11.30 a.m., excuse me, and 1.30 p.m. And she is not charging. We don't know who, who she is, what her name is. We just know that there's a table there. And for anyone in that neighborhood, who wants to partake, they can. And again, these stories are just reminding us of what village mentality is and what it means to be a part of that village and taking care of those people in our community. Outstanding. Outstanding. I love hearing it. I really do. And God bless this Maryland mom who, you know, in her anonymity, is still doing um, the work that she does for the sake of the community, providing free lunches every single day without fail from 11.30 to 1.30. That is incredible. Just setting up a table and then 
you know, um, allowing or at least giving opportunity for those, you know, who are near to be fed. And, you know, we have talked before a lot about food insecurity. And so we're so thankful for those angels really that are out there that, you know, step outside themselves once again, as this Maryland mom has, you know, and she demonstrates village mentality by using her strength and uh, operating in her lane, in her ministry to feed her community. So thank you so much, my friend, for that story. That's beautiful. You're always welcome, Queen. And for our kings and queens out there, our villagers out there who are listening, please let us know if you have a story or if you have witnessed an example of village mentality. We would love to hear from you. Please send your stories to our email address, which is villagementality20vision at gmail.com. And we will be sure to share your story on our show. Do you have any closing remarks, my friend? Just this week with everything that we have said, making sure that our villagers stay informed and stay tuned. That's it. Wonderful. And we thank you again for everything that you brought to the table this week. We appreciate you. And we thank you for tuning in to yet another episode of Village Mentality, the podcast. We truly appreciate all of your support. And we do hope that you'll tune in again next week. Be blessed, beautiful people. And here's the brighter days. <music>